Well, hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the GBS podcast, where we host candid conversations about business, theology, and everything in between. My name is Kent Lapp, and I'm thrilled to be your host. I want to give a special thank you to our show sponsors, which are Lost Valley Ranch, Exodus HR Group, and Riverwood Cabins. You can go to gospelbusinessstrategies.com and click on mini course. And two things you'll find there. One, you'll find the links to our show sponsors. And two, if you want to go ahead and take the free mini course, it gives you a template from which to lead your business and essentially breaks down business leadership activities into annual, quarterly, monthly, weekly, and, and daily activities. And that may be helpful. So go to gospelbusinessstrategies.com and click on mini course. Okay, to the point of this introduction, I want to introduce to you Stephen Mansfield, who I was thrilled to have as a guest on this show. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, popular speaker, and he advises leaders worldwide. He's also a regular commentator on Fox News and CNN. Stephen first rose to global attention with his groundbreaking book, The Faith of George W. Bush, an enormous bestseller that Time Magazine credited with helping to shape the 2004 U.S. presidential election. Wrap your head around that. The book was also a source for Oliver Stone's award-winning film, W. And Mansfield's The Faith of Barack Obama was another international bestseller. He's written celebrated biographies of Booker T. Washington, George Whitefield, Winston Churchill, Pope Benedict, and Abraham Lincoln, among others. Publishers Weekly described his book, Killing Jesus, as masterful. This guy has written a ton of books, sidebar, and um, you can just Google Stephen Mansfield Wikipedia for the list of his books. It's quite impressive. Okay, back to the bio. Mansfield's humorous but fiery Mansfield's Book of Manly Men has inspired men's events around the world. His more recent The Miracle of the Kurds has been selected as Book of the Year by Rudaw, the leading Kurdish news service. As a result of this book, Mansfield has become a leading voice in support of the Kurds against the evil of ISIS in the Middle East. Another sidebar, I apologize. Mansfield's book of Manly Men was actually my introduction to Stephen Mansfield. And someone recommended that book shortly after we moved to Nashville in 2014. Read it very quickly, made a lot of notes, did a lot of underlining. And that led me to another one of my favorite business books of all time, which Mansfield wrote, The Search for God in Guinness, which we actually get into in this episode. Okay, back to the bio. Stephen speaks widely about men, leadership, faith, and the lessons of history and forces that shape modern culture. He is also a much in-demand communications advisor whose firm, the Mansfield Group, is located in Washington, D.C. Mansfield lives in Nashville, uh, which is where we had this podcast, and the nation's capital with his wife, Beverly, an award-winning songwriter and producer. For more information, visit stephenmansfield.tv. Okay, so now you're getting a little glimpse on why I was so excited to have uh, Stephen Mansfield on the podcast. In this episode, we cover what it is to be a manly man, and he actually has five maxims in the book that we discuss, and we get into a whole bunch more on what it is to be a manly man. Um, we talk about the value of hardship and even physical challenge for men. We talk about business principles from the Guinness family and a little bit of my favorite learnings from his book, The Search for God in Guinness. We talk about communication and much, much more. I'm thrilled to give you this conversation with Stephen Mansfield. I hope you enjoy. 
Stephen, thank you for being on the podcast. Great to be with you. It's quite an honor. I was really looking forward to this. You've written a bunch of books, and two of them are some of my favorite of all time. I want to start with this question. So you have actually, just by my calculation, written 22 or 23 books. Yeah. You <laughs> are a history buff. You are up to date with what's going on politically and culturally. So I'm curious, what are you most excited about or what are you most thinking about or what are you most concerned with? Just personally, out of yeah. everything that's going on, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just curious what, what you're most excited about or concerned with. The thing that I'm most uh, energized about in terms of my work as well as what's going on in the culture is this current state of men. I'm really concerned about men, hmm. uh, and I think it's fixable, and I think we can mm -hmm. fix it in our generation. So I'm writing, speaking, you know, building movements, everything I can do to, to answer it. But everything I see in the news, what I see happening culturally, everything from the Me Too moment to, mm -hmm. you know, ha hassles in sports to criminal activity to declining educational standards, all of it comes back, as far as I'm concerned, to the crisis of manhood in our generation. So uh, that's what's got me most exercised right now. Interesting. So that's actually a surprising answer because, so this is a great segue because I did want to talk about manhood. Great. And I knew that was an interest of yours. However, I'm surprised by the fact that it's of most interest to you right now with everything that's going on. Yeah. Because it has been of interest to you for a number of years, correct? It has. So, I, I guess I think probably the way to understand it is I do a wide variety of things. I work with the Kurds. I work in D.C. I consult politically. I do a lot of speaking. I mean, it, all the things that you know that I do. But for some reason, all of it has circled back around to manhood. Now, that's not the only thing I'm going to do, obviously. But whatever conversation you and I have today whether it's leadership, the Trump administration, crises in churches, uh, situations in universities, criminal stuff, ISIS, wherever we go in the world, whatever we're talking about, there's a hook in that about manhood. So mm -hmm. even though I, I continue to focus on the things I've always focused on, somehow I'm always being forced back to the issue of manhood as part of the solution to any crisis I'm talking about. And that's why I just can't let it go. So I've committed about a third to a half of my time for the rest of my life to helping men become great men. Fascinating. So is that just a result of a statistical measure, say men are 50% of the population, although I have no idea what the actual percentage is, or is that result of the particular role of men or in manhood, or there's something particularly gone wrong with manhood? When you say all these things come back to manhood, yeah. is that just because half the world is male and so naturally a lot of things are going to come back, or is there something different going on? It's not anything different, but the, uh, the cultural crisis that we've been in maybe since, let's say, the 60s when it comes to manhood, which really is sort of the beginning of the real disease that's attaching itself to modern masculinity, all of that is it's sort of bearing fruit now in our culture. So whatever we're talking about, you know, ISIS, for example, is a manhood issue. There's just no question mm -hmm. about it. I know people think of it in terms of Islam, mm -hmm. but I know some guys in ISIS and I know some people who have been captured by ISIS. And those guys are just untethered street thugs who got captured by a violent movement. So, so what's my conclusion? Noble manhood, good fathering, an ethical code, a vision of manhood for that culture. 
would have changed that, would be part of the answer for that. And by the mm-hmm. way, we'll have to be if we're going to really defeat ISIS in the hearts of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not being political at this moment. We talk about the crises in D.C., where whether it's the cowardice of Congress or it's the actions of Trump or whatever it is. We're still talking about manhood issues and how men yes. conduct themselves and how they speak of women and how they, you know, if we're talking about Hollywood and the arts, well, the Me Too movement is pretty much, you know, swept through that. So my point is that no matter what I look at, no matter what I talk about, no matter what I'm focused on, uh, I keep having the fruits of this confusion about uh, masculinity and what it is and how it ought to function be thrown back in my face. And so mm. I just can't get away from it. Yeah. Well, you wrote a book on it, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, an utterly invigorating guide to being your most masculine self. <laughs> I think this was copyrighted in what, 2013, 2014? Yeah, around then. Okay. Huh? Um, which I read this book in 2014, I believe it was. Really, really enjoyed it. I'm glad. I reference it occasionally. So thank you for writing this. In, I believe it's in this book, there's a quote, and I can't recall now if it's from you or if it's from someone else, but I'm pretty sure it's in this book. It's masculinity is earned by winning small battles with honor. Yeah. So what might that look like for the average American male in 2019? Well, I think it have to, we'd have to look at each guy's context. What is honor? Honor is doing the noble thing. Honor is being the best you can be for a higher cause than just yourself. Honor is using your gifts as a male for the defense and the protection and the, and the betterment of other people. So how can you as a male conduct yourself for the betterment of women? How, how can you prepare yourself? How do you take care of your body? How do you take care of your mind? How do you prepare yourself even martially? I don't mean to be dramatic about it, but mm-hmm. even in terms of self-defense and, mm-hmm. and what have you, how do you become a good man? Uh, if you are married, you live, yeah, for the glory of God, but you also got to produce. You've got to, I have a friend who jokingly says, ain't no romance without finance. I mean, in other words, mm. you, uh, a, a, a husband, a father, he's got to be earning the money. He's got to know how to manage that money. So there's, a, there's an investment in skills. There's an investment in, in effectiveness that is a result of that honor and honor, of course, is living for a higher value system. It's mm-hmm. living for something beyond yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what's happened in modern manhood is that modern manhood has been made to uh, seem as though it's a bunch of testosterone men guided by their penises going through life marauding and raping and pillaging. Mm-hmm. That's the toxic masculinity they talk about on the campuses. Well, I believe manhood's nobler than that. Mm-hmm. And it's not all about service. It's not all about other people. It's also about tending yourself and, and walking through life with a band of brothers. Mm-hmm. But the average man in our generation does not have any of those skills. They don't know how to walk with a band of brothers. They don't know how to team with other people. They don't even know the basic skills of friendship. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of stuff we're trying to restore. So if that is true for our generation, was that true for the last generation, the generation before that, and the generation before that? Is, just, is this just a common generational problem with manhood? Or is this something new and different in our generation? And if so, then how did we get here? There is something new and different, and that is that in previous generations, the culture of manhood, the bonding of men, the teaming of men together was forced on men almost automatically. Think about your ancestors, whatever your ethnicity is or family background, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, even 50 years ago, probably all lived in maybe a smaller town, tight family, large family. This was the norm. I come from a background where they, they, they lived in small southern villages and some are Native Americans. So you had tribe. Uh, you had large families. You had, you had brothers. You had uncles. You had grandfathers. Everybody was in the same home or the same compound or the same community. And they, they had to teach each other the lore of manhood or the community wouldn't have survived. So mm-hmm. if you're my son, I'm teaching you how to shoot. I'm teaching you how to woo a woman, you know, as they used to say. And I'm teaching you how to discipline a son and all that kind of thing because that's part of the survival of the community. Well, 
when you hit World War II, approximately, you hit the cultural upheavals that came afterwards. Uh, you hit the technological changes that we've had, the industrial changes that we've had. Now, it's very possible for a man, first of all, to grow up in a home with no father. Mm. Uh, second of all, to grow up in a home that's abstracted from the rest of his, uh, his relatives. No grandfathers around, no uncles around, no, no cousins around. Mm-hmm. And it's very possible for him to grow up without any male models at all. Anybody who knows anything about manhood or fatherhood, Mm -hmm. more than half of men in America today are raised by women. Hmm. So this is going to create a huge crisis. All of that to say, we have to be intentional about things that used to be automatic. We have Mm -hmm. to be intentional about going after building a band of brothers. Band of brothers was automatic years ago. Mm -hmm. Now you you, you can walk alone in this world and never have a meaningful relationship with another man. Mm -hmm. In fact, the suicide rate in the Western world is skyrocketing for men. And it's skyrocketing largely when they do the psychological postmortem. They find out that it's loneliness that caused these men to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. In England, if you are 50 and older and you don't die of a heart attack, you've likely died of suicide. That's how prevalent suicide is. Wow. And the psychological postmortem is always about, I don't have any men who know me or care about me mm-hmm. or connected to my life. So the short answer is, yes, something dramatic has changed. It's, the, it's uh, not just blaming a sexual revolution or blaming cultural revolution. It's, it has to do with technology. It has to do with media. It has to do with everything. But the bottom line is, if we're going to survive, if we're going to be noble men, we have to be intentional about what mm-hmm. used to be automatic. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the big message there. Yes. And so I know the, the term Banner Brothers has come up quite a lot with my research on you and even in the past, just with following your work. What is a Band of Brothers? And how would you suggest the average... 30 to 40 year old guy, dad, husband with a lot of responsibility go about building that? Yeah, it's a great question. A band of brothers, first of all, is a group of guys that you do life with, that you know, you give them access to your life. You have access to their lives. Yeah, you have fun. Yeah, you smack talk. Yeah, you work out. Yeah, maybe you hike or you go on trips together, whatever. But the most important thing is that you have reached what I call a free fire zone. For those who've been in the military, then the free fire zone has to do with a, a condition of how freely you can shoot on a battlefield. Mm. Well, in, a, in this context, it has to do with the fact that if you and I are in a band of brothers, I say to you, you can say to me anything that needs to be said to make me a better man. You can address anything. You hear a cell phone call where I'm tight with my wife, rude, angry with my... You you can say what's going on at home. Mm-hmm. I check out the backside of the waitress two or three times at the restaurant we're at. You go, hey, you got a babe at home. What's going on with you, man? Mm-hmm. What's up with that? I have not one glass of wine or two, but I have six. You know what I'm saying? Or my language is dropping or whatever it is. My house is falling apart. It's not a, a society in which we're critical of each other. It's mm-hmm. a bunch of guys who are committed to helping each other become great men and yes. having a lot of fun along the way. And that, again, that used to be almost automatic. You had a bunch mm-hmm. of guys in the barracks, or you had a bunch of guys, and they might have been, might not have been devoted to noble purposes, but at least you had a bunch of guys around you. Mm-hmm. Now the average guy can't even name a best friend in our society. Surveys mm-hmm. show the average guy cannot even name a best friend. So what you've got to begin to do is turn the relationships you have into something deeper. You know, three B them, as we sometimes humorously say, building your band of brothers, three Bs. Start turning those relationships towards discussion of manhood, towards drawing men into what you need in your life. Let's say that I'm terrible at taking care of my money and keeping a checkbook. And a guy I'm hanging out with and working out with is really good at that. I say, look, I don't want to bug you, but could you help me in this area? And if I can help Mm -hmm. you in some other area, I will. You kind of have a covenant of help that goes on there a little bit. And that can deepen that and maybe recommend a book, you know, some book Mm -hmm. about manhood. And now the whole thing starts to turn towards discussions and, and challenging each other. And then one day you finally reach that free fire zone where mm-hmm. you say, hey, challenge me where I need to be challenged. Let's do this thing together. Yeah. 
So what you said about the Band of Brothers holds each other accountable, calls each other out on issues. I've had this discussion with a few of, of my friends in the last couple of years. I mean, it comes up actually often, the need for community. It's something I wanted to talk about maybe a little bit later on more specifically. But I can think of a few of my friends that want that. They want to be called out. Yeah. They're not looking to just, they want to be challenged. And it seems to me like there's something in a man that actually wants that. If he's honest, yes, he wants that sure direct, honest feedback. We have this need. It's not happening as much. Men seem to want this, but there's a barrier. I yeah. mean, it seems like. Yeah. Is that just a barrier in our own minds? Is it? What is that? What is that barrier? It can be a number of things. It can be a cultural thing. You know, in the South, I've had Southern guys go, well, I would never, you know, <laughs> hurt that man's feelings by addressing what needs to be. Or up, up yeah. out in the West, we're supposed to be the Marlboro man, you know, two individual to help each other. Up North, we're all supposed to be cold hearted. There can be mm -hmm. a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. But I find it comes down very quickly when somebody just gets transparent for a moment. I don't mean in the sense mm -hmm. of, you know, you're constantly talking about your weaknesses and boring everybody with mm -hmm. your challenges. But I am talking about the fact that if I come to you and I say, look, I got a serious problem with my weight. You're obviously buff. You're obviously in good shape. Would you just show me how to work out better? And, mm. and, um, and maybe we can build a deeper friendship at that level. And I, I'd appreciate it if you just, and you know, you just take it to another level. Yes. You just take it beyond the sea. We're all awash in a sea of casual relationships. Yes. And so you got to go ahead. I mean, I think most guys would be doing well to blow up their current circle of friends if they can't take it to the next level. Mm. I'm not really your friend. If you can't say I'm, I'm my checkbook is falling apart. My marriage is falling apart. I don't know what to do with a teenage daughter. Uh, I'm, I'm 50 pounds overweight. You know, I'm drinking too much. Whatever it is that you can't say that and get me to help. I'm not a serious friend. Yeah. And you'd be better off finding somebody else than me. Yeah. What would you say then as it relates to manhood and this band of brothers to a man or woman, because it could be either that would say, well, that was great for 25 years ago, but this is 2019. That's not how we do things now. That sounds sexist that you should have a band of your own gender or whatever. Yeah. I mean, what would you say to that? Well, I think sexism and racism has to do with how we treat people in certain races and sexes. It doesn't have to do with how we get the coaching that we need to be good people. I live in D.C. most of my year, and I, I'm not being pejorative at all when I say my black friends call that chocolate town, and 90% of my friends there are blacks. Mm -hmm. um, and they're thrilled. I, I mean, it just so happens that in my band of brothers are a lot of blacks, but if my band of brothers was all white, my guys, my black friends would be going, well, great. Steven's going to be a better friend for us. He's going to mm -hmm. be a better guy for us. I don't care what color the people are who are mm -hmm. chastising him about how many Oreos he eats or whatever, you know. Yep. So you know, I want, I want you to be a great man. If all of your band of brothers is Chinese or, I mean, what mm -hmm. difference does it make to me mm -hmm. when you show up in my world, you're a better man. You're a strong man. You're a noble man. You're, a, you're, you're, you're physically fit. You're, you're together. Your home is solid and we can be good friends without, uh, without me having to worry about who, who helped get you there. I don't know yes. who your math teacher was in high school either, yes. uh, but he obviously taught you something. So my point is I'm a little sarcastic about that kind of stuff. Cause I think we let a little bit of trendiness creep in here. Do you really yes. care what race my foot football coaches. I have a business mentor in DC. She happens to be a black female. Does that matter to you? Suppose mm -hmm. he, he was a male uh, Chinese guy. Well, you wouldn't care. Mm -hmm. So whatever gets me to the victory uh, circle is what I care about. Yes. Um, and I understand the charge that you're raising, but I think we're going to have to blow that stuff up because remember now, people not only are failing the life, but people are dying over these issues. Yes. Literally people are killing themselves over this issue. Mm -hmm. So given that I live, I live in a very, very multi-ethnic world. And so 
I get real impatient with people being too choosy about these matters. Yes, I totally agree. And that's really good insight. And don't you think also that it's some insight on the naysayer? Because what you said is, why would it matter who's helping us become a better person if we're becoming a better person? But the same naysayer that might say, well, that's sexist, might not actually want us to become a better person because that challenges them. Right. And exactly. so it's almost an insight yeah. into every them. Every barrier, every excuse I can remove from anybody around me, I will. Well, I don't want to have a black doctor do a do surgery on me. Oh, really? Well, you're going to die of that disease, you know? So that just, what I do is I say, look, I'll get whatever help I can get from whoever I can get it from. Yeah. And if the best guys for me are Jewish or female or whatever, I'll just, I'll just get the help that I need, you know? Yep. Okay. So you have four maxims in the book. I want to go over them and I want to ask questions about two of them. So maxim number one is manly men do manly things. Yes. Maxim number two, manly men tend their fields. Yes. Maxim number three is manly men build manly men. And maxim number four, manly men live to the glory of God. Yes. That's an interesting one um, that you would have in there. I want to come back to number two. Uh, Manly men tend their fields. And this is similar to Jordan Peterson's role number six, I think it is, in his book, 12 Rules for Life. Are you up on the Jordan Peterson yes, stuff? I mean, he just seems to be yeah. all, the, all of the rage. Yeah. And uh, I've seen a couple of his interviews, and finally I was like, well, there's enough people talking about this, I need to get the book. So yeah. I, I haven't even gotten to rule number six yet, but I've seen that <laughs> it's a rule. So, and, and that is set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Yeah. What well, seems to me, it, that rule and your maxim, manly men tend their fields, could be saying somewhat the same things. They're close. So the question is, manly men tend their fields. Why is that maxim important and is it naturally harder for men to tend their fields than it is women i don't i don't think it's harder i think that that men have some weaknesses in them that can um it just the, their makeup uh, allows them to be distracted from that and the, and the messages of our culture of late distract them from that i believe that i could i could have used other words i could have used real estate terms i could have said every man's meant to grow in a state and mm-hmm. tend that estate but i took the language from some ancient words when uh, even in the Bible, people may recall that Paul said, I'm not going to boast beyond the field assigned to me. Plato used the word. Other people used the word. Uh, the idea is that for, I believe that if for every stage of a man's life, there's a field assigned to him. Mm. It's the total body of responsibilities, obligations. And yeah, I would even say joys and duties that he's meant to have. So a 16 year old's got half of a bedroom, you know, and a, a job at Pizza Hut, you know, and some textbooks and maybe a dating life and, a, uh, and, and the obligation to be a good family member. You know, that, that may be the total extent of his field. By the time you get to college, you've got more. By the time you're young married, you've got more. And it's not just the things you, you own. It's what are the priorities for your life? Like there, you might in this season of your life be devoting yourself to community service in a way you didn't a year ago. And in three years, you might be working on a doctorate and you might pull back from all of the stuff that you've done in the community. I mean, that's just a small example. Mm-hmm. Your body may, may need more attention these six months than it will in a year. But, but ultimately, the field assigned to a man is everything he's responsible for. Mm-hmm. I mean, think for a moment about our image of the, the pitiful man that we despise. He's 100 pounds overweight, and he's sitting in a nasty sweatsuit in a barco lounger, and his house house has fallen down around him. Nobody in that house is well-tended. His wife is bitter. His kids are off slinking away to do stuff. They hate him. He's screaming for somebody to bring another beer and a sandwich before the second half, you know, and he's not taking care of anything. That's our mm-hmm. image of the, of, the, of the pitiful man mm-hmm. who's taking care of nothing and let everything in his life go to hell. Mm-hmm. And 
The opposite, of course, is a man who's tending his field, because I believe that one of the main functions of a man uh, is to protect, hawk over, and to nurture everything to the fulfillment of its purpose within the field assigned to him. Mm -hmm. So that means his kids, that means his wife, that means his homes, that means his money, that means, you know, the other people who are connected to him in that way. And of course, that also means taking care of himself and having Mm -hmm. a band of brothers and getting some time. I think most guys don't rest enough, believe it or not. I think most guys don't play enough. I mean, so Mm -hmm. that's that's in there too. But that field assigned to you is very, very important. And um, and most of, we're, we're obviously dealing with huge devastation in our society because of a failure to tend fields. Mm-hmm. But I think most men don't even think about that way uh, in terms of manhood. Yes, totally agree. You have a, a quote in the book from Theodore Roosevelt, who's my namesake. So I always love quotes from him. But he says, uh, big jobs usually go to the men who prove their ability to outgrow small ones. Yes. Such a great quote. Well, and that's how we increase, don't we? Mm-hmm. I mean, I increase in a job in my life as I tend the field I currently have and then I'm given more. Either I earn more if I'm you know, self-employed, my company gets bigger, I get, I get more whatever, bigger platform, however you want to measure it. If I'm working for Ford, I move up within Ford. Why? Because I've done a good job with the field I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, my kids increase and prosper and go off and do great things. Why? Because I tended my field. My mm-hmm. wife is shiny and happy because I tended my field. I could go on and on and on. So a man, it's important that we look at men and urge men to look at themselves in terms of how they're tending their field. Yes. And, I, and by the way, I don't assume that I have a 3D view on myself. So that's mm-hmm. why I need a band of brothers. Yep. Uh, they notice things I don't notice. Yep. Uh, they, in fact, I, my band of brothers will call me on the road. They, I travel a lot and they know it. They'll call me on the road and ask me how the eating is going. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I don't have any special problems there. And how mm-hmm. you, you doing with the women? I don't have any special problems there, but they're not stupid. Yep. They don't when a man travels and he's away from home. He's a little bit more vulnerable. So yes. they ask, I, I say, ask me anything. I don't get offended. Ask yep. me if I'm, I've never had cocaine in my life. Ask me if I'm taking white powder up my nose, whatever you want to ask me, mm-hmm. I don't care. And so what they're doing is they're making sure that I'm tending my field. Did you go to workout yesterday? Great. Proud of you. You know, yes. that kind of thing. Yes. So that's, that's, that's what, that's what we're talking about. And I think if men will think about their lives that way, rather than just a list of masculine duties, mm-hmm. I think they'll be happier. And so do you think that maybe at one point we were doing this, mainly maintaining their fields, maybe culturally speaking, sort of born out of the American dream, so to speak, which could eventually appear shallow to some and there may be sort of a fallout. But and so I wonder if we're sort of in that fallout now, like it it seems to me like it's less cool or common or just like there is sort of a backlash on the idea that tend what you have, grow more responsibility, become more successful even. And yet it's not an American dream thing. It's actually a biblical principle. Like yeah. it's a wisdom principle. There's no question. We are called to take responsibility with what we have. And so maybe the difference there can come back to motive. Are you trying to tend your field so you can be, you know, rich and powerful and, and abusive? Not that those three even go together, but, right. but why are you trying to right. tend your fields and take responsibility? Well, what happens with manhood in our generation is they want the success that comes from tending your field, but they don't want to actually tend their field. Uh, yes. You know, this, this is, this is one of the big tensions between baby boomers and millennials. Baby boomers look at millennials and go, well, man, you can be as successful as you want to be, but you'll have to put in the 50 years I did to get there. Yes. You know, you'll have to gain the skills. You'll have to learn the things I learned. So yeah, I, th- I think that, that what's going on now we're dealing with a cultural backlash, yeah, against the idea of responsibility.
responsibility, but we're also mm-hmm. seeing the devastations of responsibility. A father not at a home is a failure to tend a field. Uh, a son unfathered, a failure to tend a field. Mm-hmm. Uh, a community left to fall apart, a failure to tend a field. You know what I mean? Part of my obligations to the community I live in, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. So I, th- I think that this is a really seminal idea, and I think it changes the understanding of manhood. Yes. I, I, I battle... I really try to get people who speak to men, not just to give them, do two things, not to guilt men all the time. And, you know, don't touch this, don't do that, don't be bad. And then also not to make them feel like they've got a list of manly dues when they go home, uh, a yes. list of duties. It's, it, it's not that way. When I tell a man, you've got a field and your obligation under God is to grow that field and cause it to fulfill its destiny and make sure everything within it flourishes. I see men light up. They get excited about that because men are doers. Yes. But if I go home and I say, feel differently about stuff, <laughs> yes. guys got to sit, you know, sit in the shower or the toilet or in the office and go, okay, how do I ma- how do I do emotions management to make right. this happen? You know? Yep. And I want, I mean, that'll happen. I think the feelings will change, but it's the duties that guys love yes. when it comes to having a vision like that. We yes. don't give men enough of a vision for noble manhood. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's in the book, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller and Catherine Alsdorf. And they make a point in there that the church often says to the carpenter, do a good job come to church and don't drink too much beer. Right. And what church should be telling to that carpenter is build really great tables. Right. You know? So I, I, I totally agree that, um, that you can strip away the power of man by focusing on the wrong things. Yes. So I want to get to maximum number three, manly men build manly men. And there's a quote in your book and it says a woman simply is, but a man must become. Yeah. And, it has to do with manly men build manly men. And when I read that, when I read that quote, a woman simply is, but a man must become, I stopped. I just stopped. Yeah. Like that was, that was one that I had to really stop and chew on. Yeah. And I think it's actually really accurate. It is. So how do we go about turning males into men now? How do well, we build? That, that quote is by Camille Paglia, who's one of my favorite secular commentators on culture. And uh, she is making the point that women become women largely through the biological changes in their bodies. I mean, women suddenly want to have children. Why? Because they get to a certain point. I mean, for the, for the most part, I'm speaking mm-hmm. in generalities now, or they grow breasts or their bodies change. They stop being tomboys and now they become prom queens. I mean, they, it's a different, it's a shift. It happens. Uh, but masculinity in a, in a male has to be called out and it's done by other males. And that's the thing we've got to realize a man doesn't naturally and biologically just go on to become a man. I mean, I realize he grows hair and he gets bigger in certain places and he, and he has, you know, more muscles and what have you, deeper voice, but that doesn't make him a man. That doesn't, Mm -hmm. that doesn't automatically make, turn him towards what manhood is or what noble manhood is. Um, that's gotta be called out. It's gotta be pointed out. It's gotta be coached out. It's gotta be taught. It's gotta be modeled. That's why we need a community of men. I mean, the reality is that men need noble masculine bonding of the kind I'm talking about really more than women need female bonding to become women. Mm, interesting. See what I mean? I mean, women bond easily. I mean, my wife, my wife can build a best friend on the line at Kroger before mm-hmm. she gets home, you know, uh, whereas I've got to be a little bit more intentional about my friendships. Yeah. I, I, like I say, I travel a lot. I do a lot of things. I could have a world of casual relationships and have no one who really knows my life. Mm-hmm. So all that to say that she's making a very, very important point, And that is that as much as given what I do, I believe obviously in books, I believe in conferences, I believe in television, I believe in videos, I do it all. 
what I know is ultimately what calls masculinity out of you and me are other men who are watching our life, who know what masculinity is and who can draw it out, coach it, challenge it, you know, woo it out, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, train us in it. That's how it's going to happen. Yeah. You talk in the book about the value of just doing physical things as a man. And when we think about, I, when we think about our body being attached to our mind, I mean, we are a whole person. Mm-hmm. So do you think that is another thing that we've become less good at? Men are meant to be active and physical. And now we're in a world where just naturally you're going to be less active and physical unless you are deliberate about it. I think that's absolutely a great insight that you've had. They do studies where they put little girls in a room with a whole bunch of toys and the, and the, you know, the scientists are watching them through windows. Little girls inevitably put the chairs, you know, if they can manipulate the whole room, they turn chairs facing each other and look each other right in the face. And finally, one little girl says, I like your hair. And mm-hmm. they become best friends and they go skipping off to have fun for the rest of the day. Mm. The little boys inevitably, after kind of circling for a while, will move the chairs side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and look out at the world, look out at mm. the toys and what's going on. And finally, one will propose something to do. <laughs> Inevitably. Hey, and and so it's like, Hey, I bet we can set that door on fire. Hey, I bet I can race you to that tree. Hey, I bet I can beat you at, uh, you know, whatever. And they propose something and they do it. And that's how men bond. You you know how it is. You've worked on a work crew or Mm -hmm. remodeled a house for a widow of the church or whatever kind of thing you've been involved in. Men size each other up in motion. It's Mm -hmm. while we're working. It's while we're moving around. The guy who's sitting there drinking water all the time and talking all the time and never lifts a hammer. We know who he is. We got his number, right? But the guy who quietly goes about his work but still tells a funny story once in a while and is pleasant to be around, we got his number too. We know who he is. Yes. So men are doers. Mm -hmm. Men are doers. In fact, I know a pastor who even teaches his guys to pray, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. because Because men relate so much to doing even in prayer. So, mm. yeah, I think it's a very, very vital concept. Fascinating. I want to ask about masculinity in the church because it strikes me, and I have not really read this or I have not seen studies on this, but it strikes me as a lot of common evangelical Christianity, we could even say, tends to be more feminine. Yes. And then there are pockets of churches or select churches that maybe just by happenstance that it, that church is not feminine it's either more balanced or it's just masculine nothing against the the women obviously they're sure. welcome there but there is a masculine order to things what is your assessment of that yeah i think there is a, a tendency towards the feminine in churches i think it's easily fixed it's done a number of ways first of all the pastor's got to be a manly figure and be happy to bring his manhood so to speak on stage and, and bring it before the church hey we're all going hunting hey i enjoyed hanging with the guys hey i'm a male so i don't think the way you women do and just mm-hmm. just have it right out there for everybody to see the other thing is that the men's ministry in a church cannot be some little add-on some little thing super glued on the side of the church it's got to be led from the stage it's got to mm-hmm. be it's got to be central to what's going on Time and again, they'll ask me to come speak at a large church somewhere, the men's ministry. And the men's ministry is something that meets on Saturday morning. The pastor's never darkened the door. It's got a tiny, I mean, it might be hundreds, mm-hmm. but if the church is 10,000, I'm not happy with 200 men gathering on a Saturday morning. I yeah. want, want 5,000 men gathering on Saturday morning yes. you know, to hear me speak. So 
I, I'm concerned about that. I think also, you know, there's there's a whole issue of the actual culture of the church. What kind of songs are we singing? I have a friend who jokes that, you know, when we lead guys in masculinity and teach them and train them at a at a conference or a seminar, and then when we worship, you know, it's like we're singing songs, you know, I kiss him with the kisses of my mouth or something like that, yeah. you know, rather than where are the worst songs? Where where's yes. the, where's Braveheart worship? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. I'm not saying it's all about testosterone and war, yes. but I am saying that you got to give men something to hook into. Yes. And then of course, men are doers. Don't call church just what you do sitting there for an hour on, on Sunday morning. Yes. Get them busy, get them doing things, get them changing stuff, get them on missions trips, get them changing neighborhoods, get them coaching each other, turn them on each other with principles and with yes. guides and with books. And I'll tell you what, it can just change. The, the guy I've seen do it best is a guy who pastors a church just outside of Fort Bragg. Mm. And um, I'll tell you what, he really has something special. But one of the things he said was, you know, I want to build a church that really impacts men because men in turn will make a better world for women. Mm. So he, re- he knew the stat that 80% of all church jobs were held by women. So he reversed it mm, and he hired men instead of women. Uh, and that, that sounds bigoted, but he's grown such a big church now. He's got more women by far on staff than he ever would have had before. And all the women are thrilled, of course, given how solidly, wonderfully masculine the church is. So, and, and to that point, don't you also think that, yes, men's ministries and all that, but men crave authenticity whether they really know it or not. Yes. And if the pastor doesn't truly believe in what he's saying, we're going to spot that either consciously or subconsciously. We want no part of that. Right. But if the pastor really believes in what he's saying, there's a gravitas there that men will latch onto. And then that can sort of spread throughout the church. The the, the bottom line is that most men are bored in church and they don't respect their pastors. So you've got serious men leading churches who lead as men. If they're authentic, walking in authentic manhood and they challenge other men to do the same, I, I think you'll see men rally. Men want to be involved. Men, men want to believe in God. They want to fulfill their purpose as men. They want to do good in the world. They just need somebody to point the direction and make it possible. Yes, totally agree. All right. I have to get to the second book that I definitely wanted to bring up that you've written, The, the Search for God in Guinness, subtitled a Biography of the Beer That Changed the World. And this book, I believe you wrote it in 2009, yes. give or take. So that's about a decade ago. Been a while, now. yeah. <laughs> um, this is one of my favorite business books of all time. Oh, thank I you. I really enjoyed reading it. I didn't read it until uh, 2016. I started to write on the inside of the cover when I read books. March of 2016. It's one of the books that I wish I had known about when it first came out. So I know that you didn't write it yesterday, so I don't expect you to recall like you did. But what I'm just curious, what prompted you to do this study on Guinness to begin with? Well, it was 2008 when I actually wrote it. And the world had been going through an economic collapse. And a lot of that collapse was a result of lack of ethics in the business community, Mm. right? I mean, Mm -hmm. whatever our different political views are, and I'm right of center, Wall Street misbehaved. We all all know Mm -hmm. that. People within Wall Street misbehaved. And so I began to think about examples where faith had influenced business and, and allowed companies to do noble good. Mm-hmm. And the, the, I would hope to do a whole series, and I might still do that. But Guinness suggested itself the most. I knew about the Arthur Guinness. I knew about mm-hmm. the beer. I don't drink beer myself. I don't have anything against it religious. So I don't mm-hmm. like the taste. I know that's weird. I don't like beer and coffee, so I get left mm-hmm. out of a lot of conversations. <laughs> but um, but I was intrigued by how he began to, to brew the stout that he brewed. But what's most interesting to me is that John Wesley had an influence on Arthur Guinness early in his life. 
And Wesley was interesting because he had a vision for the free market. He had a vision for business. He used to say, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can to the glory of God. Hmm. Well, for Arthur Guinness, this was like Magna Carta. This was like a declaration of independence. It was a vision statement for uh, what he could do because he was becoming a very, very prosperous brewer. And that was, by the way, at a time when brewing was already kind of a uh, doing good in society because there'd been this horrible gin craze in Europe. So all of that to say that uh, this company not only made a phenomenal product that became the world's biggest brand, but it also began to use its wealth to alleviate poverty. Mm -hmm. um, it addressed the uh, potato famine in uh, Ireland. It made a huge difference. You just can't believe it. For, for just a quick little way to, to show you how this worked, um, how they took care of people. If you had worked for Guinness in 1928, and I notice that this is a year before the Great Depression, not exactly an enlightened time for working mm -hmm. for large companies. You would have made 20% higher salaries than anybody else in your industry. Um, you would have had, good heavens, every kind of service, burial services, insurance, and, and, and a loan company, savings and loan company. Uh, there would have been massage services. There would have been library services. You would have had intramural sports. Um, I mean, just every, if you, your wife at home would have been visited by nurses and healthcare people to make sure the home was in great shape and teach you how to cook or whatever she needed to know to make sure she had a healthy home. You had retirement services. There was even a, a, a trip into the country every year that everybody was paid to take. And if you didn't have a wife, they had an internal dating service. They would actually help you find a young lady to take out. Into no the way. I don't no, recall that in the true. book. Absolutely That's true. Fascinating. I'd absolutely I'd be able to find. So if you were single working for Guinness, yeah. they would find a, a fine lady of character who would, you would take into the country for the day at their expense. It went on. And this is, again, this is uh, a 1928 version of what we now hear about from Google and exactly, Microsoft yes. and all these real advanced companies doing amazing things for their employees. Um, and, and I would, by the way, also mention, since we're sitting in Nashville, Ramsey, the Ram, mm -hmm. Dave Ramsey company, which does amazing things. Mm -hmm. So all of that to say that when I realized that they had made such a difference internally with their employees, um, every Irish mother said, be sure and marry a Guinness man to her daughter, mm -hmm. um, and made such a massive difference in poverty nationwide and around the world. I thought this is a story I want to tell as an antidote to what was happening in 2008. Yes. Uh, in so much of the financial community in our world. Yes. So obviously you, you dug in, you learned a lot about Guinness and in the process, studied business and even leadership. And I was just curious, was there anything about business or leadership that you learned from this process that was fundamentally different than what you had understood of business or leadership before going into this? Yeah, Guinness did a number of things, and I've got some principles identified at the back of the book, but uh, Guinness did a number of things that, that really challenged me. For example, they would consider long and act quickly. Mm -hmm. this, was, this is their language. They would consider long and act quickly. Now, I believe in research. I believe in getting facts, but they challenged me to take more time pondering my decisions and then act quickly. I would probably have taken a moderate amount of time to ponder my decisions and then acted slowly. Yes, yes. <laughs> they did the opposite, and it really served them well. Yes. Um, they also said, great principle that has really helped me, you can't make money from people unless you're willing for people to make money from you. Yes. And basically it's our modern slang would be leave some on the table, you know, but in other words, if, if you and I are in business together, if I'm not interested in you profiting and making money off of me, I'm probably not going to make money off of you. Mm -hmm. Well, on their scale, their massive global scale, this meant that they were raising the water level for companies and businesses all over the world. So those principles and a whole bunch of others made a big difference in my thinking. Yes. I wanted to actually ask you about 
that principle, master the facts before you act. Yes. Because there was, there's five that you have identified in the book, discern the ways of God for life and business. Yes. And that's a really great one. And what I like about that, I just, I just need to read this quote too from, you, you have it here, Harry Groton Guinness, is that the yes. correct pronunciation? He heard it from Prince Albert, but he would say, gentlemen, find out the will of God for your day and generation, and then as quickly as possible, get into line. Yeah. This is so great. Yeah. So number one, discern the, the uh, ways of, of God for life and business. And number two, think in terms of generations yet to come. Yeah, that's very, very important. The, Gen- yep. the Guinnesses, their heirs only recently stepped off the Guinness board 250 years later. Wow. So Amazing. they really did have a, a legacy. And then, of course, they, they're, even though there aren't any Guinnesses on the board right now of Guinness, they are in every kind of field in the world, from preaching to banking to f- fashion, everything. So they continue to make a big difference. It's amazing. Uh, number three, whatever else you do, do at least one thing very well. So wise. Um, number four, master the facts before you act. And then number five, you already referenced, invest in those who would, you would have invest in you. Yes. I want to come back to number four, master the facts before you act, because this was another one that when I was reading this book, I'd spend a lot of time thinking about this one. This one was very instructive to me because I can tend to lead from the gut. Yeah. And so I'm curious what your recommendation is. We have a lot of business leaders and owners that listen to this podcast. How would you instruct people to think about this one in balance? doing the research, doing the work, mastering the facts, and yet not wasting time and eventually yeah. making a call. You want to be careful not to become immobilized by facts. I know that I know people who are just, uh, I call them optionistas. They are almost uh, mesmerized by options and just almost frozen. You know, they're yes. stifled. They can't, they can't make a decision. But uh, you want to allow voices that normally you freeze out. All leaders have a tendency to listen to certain voices and freeze others out. Mm. Uh, so you want to, if you're making these important decisions, listen to voices you wouldn't normally listen to. Listen to your critics. Listen to the guy who says you're, what you're doing is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, listen to people who have maybe not been your favorite voices in the past. The other thing is go look at situations where other people have done what you've done and failed and or been a success. Mm. In other words, open open your windows to fresh, fresh breezes of information. Mm-hmm. And then all also decide, uh, maybe even in advance, when will I have enough information? Mm. When is the terminus? Because research can go on forever. There are people yes. still sitting in libraries 50 years later. Yeah. We're still waiting for them to act. You know, <laughs> And I believe in all of that, obviously. I believe in academics. I've got a doctorate. I'm, I'm, I'm a research person myself. But if you're going to lead, you're going to have to act. So mm-hmm. maybe even before you start the process, at what point will I decide that I've got all the information that I need? Yes. And that will help you draw it to a close. Yes. My research uh, for decisions is usually a, an intense season of research, concentrated research, but it doesn't last very long. It's just that I get a lot of information. I'll go somewhere for a month and really immerse myself, and then I'm done. Let's go. Let's do this thing. I'm ready to make a decision. Okay, yeah. So you sort of know going in. You have a month, and so you got to learn right. everything you can in a month. Right. So there's a set time yeah. beforehand, and then you'd learn everything you can within that set time frame. That makes sense. Now, I feel like you have you see a lot of business leaders, leaders in general. Your sample size for what's going on in the leadership world is quite large, larger than most. So I'm curious, where do you often see people going most wrong with this principle, mastering the facts before you act, taking too much time or not enough? What what do you see as the most common kind of fallacy here on this principle? Number one, if you're going to research broadly, you're going to get conflicting information. So you're going to have to make judgments. Hmm. 
this guy's giving me a perspective because he failed and he's afraid of the loan process. Or that guy is giving me perspective because he had plenty of money. He never had to go through the loan process. In other words, I have, you can't sit there. Some people hear competing uh, views or, or perspectives and they are stuck between the two of them like they're caught in a tractor beam and they can't break free on Star Trek. The fact is that, that you have to go, you have to make a decision. I'm going to follow this guy's advice or this is wisdom. Okay, I'm done with that subject. You, you've got to move on. You've got to mm -hmm. make judgments. Mm -hmm. uh, the immobilizing thing is a problem. And the other thing too is people, especially leaders, there tends to be a reality distortion field around them and they only let through uh, the views that they really value, the free views they want to hear. So I actually go to people who believe completely differently from me. I, I specialize in getting input from people who are completely different from me, mm. who think mm -hmm. completely other. Yes. Um, I like listening to critics. I like, I, I'll even find people who have written, in one case, I won't get into the specifics, but in one case I was researching something and I went and asked a guy if he'd had lunch and the guy had actually written a very critical review of something I had done before. Mm. And the reason was I knew he wasn't afraid of me. Mm -hmm. I knew he had a critical perspective of how I'd led in a given situation. By the way, I was right. But, mm. but, it, but, but, but he was upset about what I had done. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to hear a completely other view than what anybody around me would tell me. Uh, it was yes. very good for me. Mm -hmm. It didn't change anything about what I thought about that previous situation. Yep. But it at least helped me know how people think from inside of his yes. skin like his, so to speak. Yes. And it wasn't a race thing. I'm just using that yep. as a euphemism. So valuable. Yeah. So I want to ask you this, because this is another thing that stuck out to me when I read your book. This is in the first couple of pages, and this is, this is you talking here. You're saying your father was a different man when he drank a beer, and not because he consumed very much of it. He never did, but rather because the beer seemed to give him permission to relax, to stand down, and to find a human connection to those nearby. Yeah. So I have a, I'd love to hear what you just think about it. It may sound crazy, but it seems to me that there is something spiritual about alcohol. When you sit down with, so you don't drink beer, but I don't know if you drink wine. If we were to sit down this evening and have glasses of wines in our hands and discuss, yeah. that to me feels different than you have a Pepsi and I have a Pepsi. Yeah, it does. What are your thoughts on that, having spent time with this book? Well, I mean, I may offend some people when I say this, but I think God made it for that purpose. You know, my wife and I, we both work from home. We have office suites in, at home. Around 4.30 or 5, if it's a normal day and I'm home not traveling, one of us will say, hey, you done? And, uh, you know, I like, I like a Manhattan. She knows exactly how mm -hmm. I like it. And so we go sit together and we may hold hands or we may sit on the balcony or we mm -hmm. may go to, the, we have a green roof on the top of our building. And, uh, you know, we, we, that's rich, rich time. And mm -hmm. some people who might have concerns about alcohol might think, well, yeah, three Manhattans in, <laughs> you know, sure. no, not at all. First of all, I don't get three Manhattans yes. in, but the fact that we're just declaring alcohol time yes. and, and, and loving time uh, makes a difference. And then, yeah, when you have a, a, a glass of wine, a beer, a Manhattan, your, your soul gentles up. The edge comes off, as they often say, mm -hmm. and it's a good time to relate to people. Now, if that's the only way you can do it, you've got a problem. Yes. I mean, the same thing could happen, by the way, if you and I took, on a, took off on a five-mile run right now, there's aspects of bonding that happen during that thing, too. Mm -hmm. But I, I do believe it's, it's a gift from God. I think it was meant yes. to, to allow us to enjoy life and connect with each other a little bit more deeply. Yes, totally agree. So if you enjoy Manhattans, do you enjoy old fashions at all? They're a little fruity for me, but if I can oh, get really? the bartender to change how he makes it, yeah, I'm not okay. big on fruit. Well, if you need some old fashions at your house, have you, have you ever heard of Eli Mason? Yes. Oh, you have? Okay, yes. great. So there's a plug for Eli Mason on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're welcome, Christopher Thomas. Um, okay. 
I want to ask you about communication, obviously, because, well, for lots of reasons, you're kind of an expert there. You've written a lot of books, you do speaking, and you even do speaking mm -hmm. coaches yes. or coach speakers and so on. And this was one thing that our listeners are a lot of business people. And when we kind of pulled, what are you looking to learn in? This was very surprising to me. Having their communication improve was a resounding theme, which was really surprising for your average president or yeah. business owner. So a question for you is on communication. Where do you see people most commonly going wrong with their communication? I know it's a broad question because are we talking about a speech? Are we talking about an email? What are we talking about? But I'd say as blanket as possible, where do you see people most going wrong with communication? So just bullet point it real quickly and then you can ask me about it, any of it. In our current generation, I see people being too chummy. I'm not saying friendly now. I'm saying being too chummy and not professional enough. Mm -hmm. it's, there's a little bit of an unfair thing that happens in our generation, especially in business culture. We encourage warmth, millennials especially like warmth, like relationships, but they, it's interesting that surveys show that even millennials will think unkindly of somebody who's too chummy, too informal, mm -hmm. too emoji, too warm fuzzy, and even too you know, cussing and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. There's also the, the, any kind of, and this is, this is again where we need to be helping each other, the whole issue of grammar, the whole issue of speaking well, the whole issue of, uh, you know, it, it's funny, everybody will laugh if you just say, well, I ain't no whatever, you're just having fun, you're just playing, but if people figure out that your grammar really is bad and you're saying, you're going to be mocked, they are talking mm -hmm. about you behind your back, mm -hmm. so I encourage people. Mm -hmm. uh, I do a lot of speaker coaching, and the number one thing I teach them, and it takes a long time to get it right, but the principle is very easy. Uh, everybody has a thing called their tele, T-E-L-E, and it means the thing they transmit without opening their mouth. Mm -hmm. So when, if I were coaching you right now, the way you look has benefits, in mm -hmm. your case, many, but you also have some negatives. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say what they are right here on the podcast, but I mean, yep. I mean, and so when you first walk up and just stand at a podium, what are the positives? Mm -hmm. What are the negatives? Okay. I may be 800 pounds. Mm -hmm. uh, I may be a huge black man. Well, what's, what is going to be assumed by some people? Well, you're a big old jock. You don't have anything intelligent to say. Mm -hmm. um, I have deep set eyes. Your eyes aren't as much. People aren't going to be able to see my eyes like they can other people. Well, so I have to be a little bit more emotive when I speak and move my hands and be a little bit more demonstrative because mm -hmm. I'm not able to project emotion through my eyes. Like a couple of people I know who have big eyes. And if they just kind of go, well, I don't know, you know, they do anything yes. with their eyes, the whole room can see it. So one of the big things for people to get over with their communication is the issue of how you, what you project that you then have to, that your audience has to contend with as you speak. And yes. I think it can be a, I think it can be a great positive. If you are a very shapely woman, you've got something that's an asset. You've also got something you got to work against because mm -hmm. the, I'm sorry, there are guys in the room going to think you're a bimbo. Mm -hmm. If you're a built athlete looking guy, they're going to think, well, he's a jock. He's not a brain. Mm -hmm. It goes on. Everybody's got positives. Everybody's got negatives. How do you deal with that? And so, a lot of the speaker coaching that we do in D.C. and overseas is related to that. We were able to help a lot of people. If someone needs to give a 15-minute, in the case of a business leader, a 15-minute kind of presentation to the company or maybe a department or something, and it would be more like a speech, and the advice may be the same or different from someone that's actually giving kind of a talk at church or, or wherever in a community, wherever that is, if you were giving that person just one most common piece of advice, what is that? Use story. Hmm. Story is, I could go in all sorts of different ways about uh, confirming this, but story is the easiest way for the brain to absorb 
truth. We, that's why we've used it all through history. We use myths. We use storytelling. We use yarns around the campfire. Story is the way people most easily apprehend truth. And I try to get people to do this all the time. If you're coming into the board and you're about to make a presentation about rewiring with electricity, a certain portion of whatever, you know, rural Arizona or something, why don't you talk about a, a, a kid who's out there who wants to learn but doesn't have electricity or talk about how mm. six children froze to death last year in the desert or whatever the whatever the the story tell me the story tell me the human side tell me a story mm -hmm. um story is the most powerful means of communication i don't mean fanciful mythical you know movie type stories i'm talking about tell a story related to your subject and the best speeches i ever hear within 15 minutes are those that open with a story mm get us to a certain point, go to the technical, and then come back to the conclusion of the story at the end. Okay. Very powerful. And there's something about that story framework that resonates with our mind. We can follow, we can track. Brain science actually concludes that you will remember a story-based truth longer, mm. you will absorb it more quickly, mm -hmm. and you will be less tired. It, the brain actually uses fewer calories to absorb that story, which is very, very important because yes. it's, it, it affects what your attitude is towards it. Yes. You, know, you know what, I'm gonna be risk being a little bit rude here. If talking to me, is absolutely exhausting to you. I'm talking about we're sitting over a burger. You've, you, we've all got friends or people we know like that. An hour with them, you just would rather do push-ups the whole time. You are sure. just freaking exhausted. Well, you have a negative view towards them. It doesn't matter yes. what else they do. They might be saving the world with heart surgery for all you I know, but the point is you, are just, you just barely can stand to think about spending another hour with them. Mm -hmm. The reason is they have just taxed you. Mm -hmm. And some speakers are like that. Some speakers demand too much. Even if you like them, even if what they're saying is important, they just demand too much. Yes. So story is the way is the way that the brain absorbs truth the longest the deepest and the most quickly with the least expenditure of energy yes one of your more recent books is a book on the 10 signs of a leadership crash yes. and um, you don't need to give us all the 10 signs although you're certainly welcome to if, if you care to but if you had to distill it down to one or two again just advice for our listeners your knowledge now and um sort of seeing a lot of this happen what is your kind of your most distilled advice for leaders on avoiding a crash or tripping up in, in any way the main advice i have for leaders without even getting into the list of the 10 most common signs is to create a culture around you of redemptive or constructive confrontation if i'm on your staff and you're a healthy leader then I can come to you and say, sir, there's some, what you're thinking about this one plan here, I think you're making a mistake. Mm -hmm. And you aren't gonna blow a gasket and I'm not gonna get fired. You'll hear me out, you'll either correct me or I will have brought wisdom to you, but create a culture. I, I, I teach people that if you can't have a culture of healthy confrontation, you're gonna have a culture of unhealthy confrontation. In, in, in a marriage, for example, my wife and I constantly correct each other in small ways and bring correction, and that's normal and that's healthy. You know, you drove here in a car, so did I. A car is powered by small explosions. A plane is powered by small explosions. This is how we move forward. But if we don't have the small confrontations, then pressure builds and builds and builds. And then we have the big explosions, which means you and I never, you and I part company, never work together again. I end up with divorced or whatever it is, you see. Yes. And so, you need to create around you a culture of healthy confrontation. That way, 
whatever deformity starts to set in that can cause a leadership crash can be confronted by people who care about you mm-hmm. and know that you're open to input. Mm-hmm. That right there would do most of it. And then, of course, where I go after that is to the, to the exact signs and the things that caused the 10 things that caused the greatest amount of damage. Yes. And if people want to get that book, I think if they would just Google 10 signs of a leadership crash, right? Stephen yeah, Mansfield, they'll exactly. find it. It's I, on I, Amazon. Every, on yeah, Amazon. absolutely. So of the 20 plus books that you've written, I noticed that um, it looked like over a dozen or so were based on the life or learnings from an individual. You know, not, not, maybe not straight up biography, but right. you know, looking at someone. And, and so, and knowing that and knowing that you are well-versed and interested in history, as you look back on, on, on history, I'm curious for you personally, who most stands out to you or who do you most respect or who have you most learned or who inspires you the most? Well, there's no question the guy who inspires me the most is Winston Churchill. And that's not just because of his image as the great leader, you know, the guy with the bowler hat, the jaunty cigar and the, you know, the speeches and all that. It's that I've really drilled down into his story and, um, and he suffered a great deal. He had overcome suffering. He suffered, for example, such horrible depression throughout his life that when he was the prime minister of England, he wouldn't stay in a room with a balcony on it because he was afraid that late one night you know, a depression would hit, he might throw himself off. Now think about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about when he's staying at the White House during World War II. Mm. Now, why would I value somebody like that? Because that's what he had to overcome. He had to, he had to defeat, he had to deal with the dark night of the soul mm-hmm. in order to achieve the things he achieved. Yes. And we all do. We yes. all do. So yeah, I admire his love of history. I admire his character. I love his humor. I think leaders mm-hmm. should use far more humor. And I admire everything about him. But I really admire the fact that he had to overcome. His father hated him. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a, a child commit suicide. Two drank themselves to death. One died in infancy. I mean, I, he was at one point the most hated man in England. Mm-hmm. Um, I could go on and on and on. And yet, he's the great leader now that we celebrate. And so he's the one who most inspires me. And I, I mean, if I say that I'm the most like him, I don't mean that I'm claiming greatness. Uh, I mean that when I read his story, I see myself good, bad, and ugly on the page. And yes. It helps me a lot. Yes. Did you see the movie Churchill? I and did. What were your thoughts I on did. that? Did, did it feel like an accurate portrayal? Of that episode, it certainly was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, I mean, there, there, there was a, a scene that I kind of wish they hadn't done, the scene when he was on the, the subway and talking to all the people. But uh, Yes. But do you think that was somewhat inaccurate? It, it's there. It's very inaccurate. He never did okay. that. But, okay. it, but it was symbolic of something he did do. And that is he would go out to restaurants and talk to the waiters and talk to people on the streets and talk to the newspaper vendors and all that to okay. find out what the common people were thinking. And I think that oh, was valuable. Okay. He was a member of the upper class. I mean, yes. he, he, the, the great on you often didn't have any connection to the great unwashed. Yes. Uh, but Churchill thought differently and he went out and found out what people were thinking. Mm. And that, that's what that was meant to symbolize, even though it wasn't historical. I see. So history often proves or shows culturally accepted practices at the time to be erroneous and do you think any of those exist today that 50 years from now 100 years from now if you and i were alive then we would look back on this time and say man we had it wrong in these couple areas here and we just no one really saw it i think absolutely i think um the gender confusion that's happening in our society, the idea that gender is a cultural construct, you hear this said in the universities, I think this is the, the, people, the future generations will look back and laugh. Mm. Um, literally, the idea that, you can, that ch- gender is something that is chosen, uh, mm-hmm. culturally induced, it's not biologically induced, it's not ordained by God. 
and that you just can come out of the womb and then choose which way you want to go. I, I, that's causing horrendous problems. I'm, in fact, I recently saw a book of a number of people who had had gender-changing surgery and regretted it deeply. And mm. of course, you know, that, that, that's anecdotal and not, not scientific. But the fact is, I think, I think future generations will look back and just laugh at the idea that we went through a phase mm -hmm. um, when people are coming from the womb, clearly one or the other. Now, there are some people who, for biological reasons, have a little bit of mixing. And I'm sympathetic mm -hmm. to that. I have, have some, had some relatives who... Uh, some things went wrong in the womb and they ended up with mixed genitalia and there had to be surgeries to correct. I'm not talking about yes. those situations, but I'm talking about for the most part, we come from the womb, male or female. Mm -hmm. um, and yet the popular campus kind of, you know, pop psychology thing is that gender is a cultural construct. I think the future is going to just laugh at us about that. Mm. I really mm -hmm. do. There's an example. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. Last question. Then we need to let you go for the sake of time. Our listeners have a lot of responsibilities um, a lot of them have kids and families they're trying to do right by. They're trying to do right by the business. They're trying to serve God with everything that they do. They're busy. If you had to just give kind of a closing piece of advice, and it could be anything that you'd want to say to them, what might that be? The thing that I find the most helpful for people who are in, in that world, challenged, trying to make a difference, trying to grow businesses, got a lot of family responsibilities and so on, is sort of the, the advice they give you on the airplane. You know, if you're going to put the oxygen mask on, put it on yourself first and then help mm. the person next to you. I get up a little early in the morning so I can have time to myself. Sometimes I have to do it staying late at night based on what I've got the next morning. My wife's not offended by that. I need time alone. I'm fundamentally an introvert. I'm crazy about my wife. I'm crazy about my kids, my friends, but I come here prepared. I come here prepared because I got up this morning and I thought and I prayed and I read scripture and I read books and I reviewed what I was going to say and I made sure I was rested and fed and clothed and in my right mind. And so I could go out in the world and do whatever it was I needed to do. I think a lot of people are allowing their life, their technology, their obligations to drive them. And what you have to do is just put the brakes on and find time for yourself. Tend yourself first. Yes. I'm not saying to the exclusion of everybody else. I yes. tend my wife better because I tend myself first. And sometimes I have to find that time for self-tending at odd times. Like, like, I, like I say, late at night, early in the morning, sometime on airplanes, going across the ocean. Yep. Um, but make sure I'm tending myself, taking inventory. How am I doing? What do I need? get centered, get focused, get right, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. And I know a lot of people who just splat into the world from a manic kind of posture and they fail in business and they're un and they have no peace yes. uh, and they're not doing their best at any level. So that would be my, my strongest suggestion is find that time for tending yourself and putting yourself first just for a little while yes. and, and get on top of your game and then go. Wonderful. Well, Stephen Mansfield, thanks for being on the podcast. Great Quite to be with you. Great to be with you.